Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swans, and today is the second Sunday of Easter, also known as Divine Mercy Sunday. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God of everlasting mercy, who in the very recurrence of the Paschal Feast kindle the faith of the people you have made your own. Increase, we pray, the grace you have bestowed, that all may grasp and rightly understand in what font they have been washed, by whose spirit they have been reborn, by whose blood they have been redeemed. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. The whole community remains faithful to the teaching of the Apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The many miracles and signs worked through the Apostles made a deep impression on everyone. The faithful all lived together and owned everything in common. They sold their goods and possessions and shared out the proceeds among themselves according to what each one needed. They went as a body to the temple every day but met in their houses for the breaking of bread. They shared their food gladly and generously. They praised God and were looked up to by everyone. Day by day the Lord added to their community those destined to be saved. The Word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love is everlasting. Let the sons of Israel say, His love has no end. Let the sons of Aaron say, His love has no end. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love has no end. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love is everlasting. I was thrust, thrust down and falling, but the Lord was my helper. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my saviour. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the just. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love is everlasting. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the work of the Lord, a marvel in our eyes. This day was made by the Lord. We rejoice and are glad. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love is everlasting. A reading from the first letter of St. Peter. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy have given us a new birth as his sons by raising Jesus Christ from the dead so that we have a sure hope and the promise of an inheritance that can never be spoilt or soiled and never fade away, because it is being kept for you in the heavens. Through your faith, God's power will guard you until the salvation which had been prepared is revealed at the end of time. This is a cause of great joy for you, even though you may for a short time have to bear being plagued by all sorts of trials, so that, when Jesus Christ is revealed, your faith will have been tested and proved like gold. Only it is more precious than gold, 
which is corruptible, even though it bears testing by fire, and then you will have praise and glory and honour. You did not see him, yet you love him, and still without seeing him, you are already filled with joy so glorious that it cannot be described, because you believe, and you are sure of the end to which your faith looks forward, that is, the salvation of your souls. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. You believe in me, Thomas, because you have seen me. Happy those who have not seen me, but still believe. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. In the evening of the same day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Thomas, called the twin who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. When the disciples said, We have seen the Lord, he answered, Unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands and can put my finger into the holes they made, and unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. Eight days later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were closed, but Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he spoke to Thomas. Put your finger here. Look, here are my hands. Give me your hand. Put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. Thomas replied, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You believe because you can see me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. There were many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing this, you may have life through his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So on the Palatine Hill in Rome, um, there's some graffiti that goes back to around uh, 200 AD. And it shows a man nailed to a cross with a horse's head. And in front of that crucified man is another human figure with a hand raised towards the cross. Uh, and there's a Greek inscription underneath the image that says, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, this is intended to be a mockery. Someone's making fun of Alexamenos for believing something as preposterous as God on a cross. So the graffiti artist draws Jesus with a horse head and a stupid Alexamenos praying to this ridiculous scene. 
Now, Christians have been making a claim for nearly 2,000 years that the rest of the world finds so unlikely that it seems absurd to the point of nonsense. Jesus of Nazareth, who is God incarnate, was crucified, died, and rose from the dead to save us all from everlasting death and raise human nature up to God. This is the heart of the Christian claim and the centre of the mission of Christ. Clearly, Alex Aminos's friends thought this was pretty weird. And I suppose for us, it's not too bad. You know, we've grown up with the image of the crucifix constantly before our eyes, but we've grown accustomed to the claim of the resurrection. We mustn't allow our familiarity to domesticate the central claim of the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, who, though fully man, was no mere man and also fully God. And he submitted to death at the hands of the Romans. True death, not apparent death, not a coma, not a deep sleep. And, you know, if there was one thing that the Romans knew how to do, it was to execute someone. He was laid in a borrowed tomb that was hermetically sealed and guarded by Romans. And after the rest of the Passover Sabbath, the women returned to the tomb in order to complete the burial ritual, and they found the seal broken and the tomb empty, and the shroud was in the corner, rolled up, crumpled, and defeated. And because Jesus of Nazareth has conquered the tomb, we too are made to be sharers in his victory over death. My brothers and sisters, There is the heart of the Christian claim. That's the gospel. When we read the first reports of the resurrection of Christ in the gospels, there's a certain unbelievableness about it. The apostle Peter can't believe the first proclamation that the women make to him of the empty tomb, so he runs to see for himself. After the disciples have encountered the risen Jesus and told Thomas, he can't believe it either, and he needs physical evidence. There's something great that's being asked here. To believe something that's never happened before. Believe something that, according to all human experiences, is entirely improbable. Believe that Jesus of Nazareth is alive, never to die again. What's interesting, though, is that the Gospels aren't embarrassed by the weight of the claim that they're making. When the apostles start to preach the good news of the resurrection, they don't shy away from the sheer improbability of this great event. You would have thought that the apostles would have been somewhat embarrassed at what they were asking people to believe, but they don't back away from the reality. Jesus was crucified, truly crucified, dead and buried. And now he lives again. You know, there have been theologians, particularly in the last hundred years or so, who've started to feel the embarrassment of the resurrection and they've stepped back from its reality. You know, he was alive in the hearts of the apostles. Uh, The Holy Spirit made him present to them in their memories. No. Everything about the Gospels point to the real bodily resurrection of Christ. Jesus eats and drinks with them. He invites Thomas to touch him. He's not a ghost. He's not an image. The body that was nailed to the cross and suffered those fatal wounds 
is exactly the same body with the same wounds which Thomas is asked to touch. And none of the apostles backpedal from the sheer mind-blowing reality that Christ is alive. You know, here's the question that, you know, I have for us then. What's the basis for our belief? Why is it that we stand alongside the apostles, Alex Amenos, the martyrs, the confessors, the saints, and millions of other Christians to say, yes, it's true, this happened? Well, it's a deeply personal question. But the first thing to note is that we're able to believe it, firstly, because of what we've received. The apostles proclaimed their encounter with the risen Christ, and this message has made it all the way to you and me. Most probably by means of our parents who taught us about Christ's resurrection as we lay warmly in our beds. We believe the truth of the resurrection on the authority of those who entrusted the gospel to us. From the apostles, through the popes, bishops, priests, through the missionaries and teachers, all the way to our friends and family. This is how we come to know the gospel. And we can believe the truth of the gospel if we trust where it's come from. But that's not all. I don't believe everything that people tell me. And certainly a lot of what has passed as historical fact is incorrect. So what makes the resurrection stand out as something that we're willing to stake our lives on? What made the disciples believe the good news of the resurrection of Christ was that they encountered him. Now, I can't deny that they received a particular blessing in having seen him in the flesh and having touched him, but seeing Jesus face to face didn't remove their need for faith. St. Augustine wrote this about uh, the Apostle Thomas and his confession of faith. He says, look, Thomas saw and touched the man and acknowledged the God whom he neither saw nor touched. But by the means of what he saw and touched, he now put far away from him every doubt and believed the other. Basically, what St. Augustine is getting at is that what Thomas's senses presented to him was the man Jesus by touching him, seeing him, hearing him. But it's still faith that enabled Thomas to say, my Lord and my God. Thomas was able to profess his faith in Jesus of Nazareth, not because he touched Jesus, but because he encountered him. Now, interestingly, notice that nowhere does it actually say that Thomas actually did put his finger into Christ's wounds. Thomas believes what is said to him about the resurrection of Christ because he's met the Lord. And then he's able to make his great profession of faith, my Lord and my God. Now, granted, we don't encounter Christ in the same way as the apostles because he's ascended to heaven, right? We don't behold Christ with our eyes. But how do we know he's alive? How do we place at the core of our faith the belief that his tomb is empty? Well, though we don't see him, 
we can still encounter him. We encounter Jesus through the scriptures, through the sacraments, and importantly through prayer and meditation. This experience of encounter verifies what I received from the apostles. It corroborates what my parents told me about Jesus as I lay in bed. And in that encounter, something fundamental happens. It goes from being the faith of my parents to being my faith. Because I've encountered Jesus myself. The act of faith that Thomas makes becomes mine. Jesus is my Lord and my God. I can believe the gospel which appears too good to be true. That having suffered and died to save me from sin, Christ now lives having conquered my death. This is what it means to mature in faith. And sadly, many Catholics don't reach that stage. And, you know, our faith remains pretty juvenile. You know, not childlike, but, you know, properly juvenile. You know, we can believe in some sense, uh, but not in such a way that it actually shapes my life or causes me to be different. And you know what? When that's the case, let's face it, we're vulnerable to the ridicule of Alex Amanos's friends. They try to make us look stupid for believing what's miraculous. And so we become vulnerable to a deep skepticism which denies any possibility of God acting in the world and saving it. So how do we strengthen faith? All right. Three quick things. Faith is something that we've received from others. So, listen to the witness of the apostles. Read the scriptures. Get to know what they saw and heard. Read the constant teaching of the church so that, you know, we might know who Christ is. Faith is verified through encounter with Christ. So, read the scriptures, receive the sacraments, and pray. They're the three things. Scriptures, sacraments, prayer. That's how we encounter Jesus. No, I don't see him with my eyes, but I truly encounter him. He's the friend whose word is true and in whose word I trust. And it's from this encounter that my own act of faith rises. My Lord and my God. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.